So I had a great conversation with George R.R. Martin, obviously the uh, the brainchild for uh, what turned into the Game of Thrones series. And that's a sentence I never thought I'd say before that I sat down with George R.R. R. Martin, uh, well, indirectly on Skype. And it was awesome. He's an interesting dude. He's not all dragons and, and dire wolves. Uh, he's a big football fan. We talked about growing up a Giants fan um, and kind of a Jets fan, too. I don't know how that works, but uh, we did talk about wolves and we talked about, uh, you know, his, his upbringing in New Jersey and, you know, how pet turtles possibly played a role in the inception of the Game of, Throne, uh, Game of Thrones uh, idea, so to speak. And we obviously talked about his new project. He's still working, still creating uh, wild cards. I've been a Giants fan, uh, you know, for a long, long time. I mean, going the first game I really remember watching as a kid was the greatest game ever played, where uh, the Giants, the so-called greatest game ever played, it really wasn't that great a game, but it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Where Johnny Unitas beat the uh, beat the Giants in the last quarter and. One of the hallmarks of the Giants was always great defense. Um, you know, we, it was the first franchise in the league where the fans actually started cheering defense, defense, defense. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had Sam Huff in the middle of the violent world of Sam Huff. And, and uh, then later, of course, Carl Banks and Leonard Marshall and LT. And, uh, you know, and of course, the Super Bowl wins over the Patriots with people like Michael Strahan, O.C. Humanura, and uh, Kiwi, Matthias Kiwanuka. Yeah. And, and uh, to see this defense just collapsing and giving up lead after lead is heartbreaking for a Giants fan. Well, it's got to be tough, but you all, you had your bets nicely because you're a Jets fan too, and you grew up in the Joe Namath area, era, who, who's one of the original personalities in the NFL. You know, you also grew up in, in Bayonne, right? And so, right, Bayonne, New Jersey. So, so you have uh, somebody, uh, somebody that works on my crew said uh, they're from Bayonne. They said to ask you about the Bayonne Bees. Did you go to the, were you, were you, were you at the, the high school of the Bayonne Bees? Uh, no, that was our arch rival. I went to the Catholic high school, Marist. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. So, and, uh, so you we, got we after the bees. a big rivalry game every year. We played Bayonne High School, which was the bees. They were yeah. the public high school. And uh, they they kicked our ass every year until <laughs> my senior year. My senior year, it was a beautiful culmination of high school. The first time Marist ever beat Bayonne. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and one guy you ran into maybe along the way, I was really curious about. When I put two and two together, I was like, who else do I know from Bayonne? I mean, there's Chuck Wepner, right? I mean, he's iconic. He's adapted on screen. Did you ever meet him, run into him, and do you think they did a good job with him? I, I, I have never met Chuck Wepner. Yeah. I certainly know of him. He was very famous, uh, yeah. you know, in, in Bayonne for a while. The Bayonne Bleeder. Yeah. Um, and he was the inspiration for Rocky. He fought Muhammad Ali. And, uh, you know, never defeated him like Rocky defeated Apollo Creed finally. But right. he, uh, he gave him a much better fight than people thought. And that was what inspired Stallone to, uh, to write the first Rocky script. Right. That. right. What's the best Rocky movie? You know, I still think the first one. I mean, some of the later ones are good. But the very fact that they made the second one sort of undercut the first one, though. Yeah. Because if you look at the first one, the whole point of it is Rocky... Rocky realizes that he's just not good enough to beat Apollo Creed. Right. But he, he's going to go 15 rounds with him, which nobody else has ever done. And that was basically the Chuck Wepner story. Right. In no universe could Chuck Wepner beat Muhammad Ali, but he, he gave him a much better fight and knocked him down once and gave him a much better fight than anybody expected. 
um, and he got satisfaction out of that. And that's what Rocky got out of that first fight, which he lost. But then, it, it, you know, I think in the first movie, Rocky Balboa is based on Chuck Webner. Right. In all the later movies, Rocky Balboa is based on Rocky Marciano. Yeah. So he, they made a shift there, and instead of just being a club fighter who has one glorious night, they made him one of the great heavyweight champions of all time, which is a total change in the concept there. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, you know, when you think about, like, on-screen movie characters and, and all that, I mean, back in your day, the sports characters were few and far between. I mean, they might have been characters, but... The way things are now with the advent of the 24-hour news cycle and, you know, you talk to beat writers and, and, and newspaper guys and they're like, listen, like, I write stories about the box score, but people don't want to hear about it. They want to hear about who these guys are. And I think that's one of the coolest things about sports now is, like, you know, characters develop over time. You got a guy like Tom Brady who comes in and he, like, kind of conquers the Rams, the greatest show on turf, and he's the unsung hero that everybody's rooting for. And now 15 years later, he's, he's the arch nemesis of everybody. You got Steph Curry going through that right now. He was a fan favorite non-threatening now he's he's getting shots taken at him you know guys like katie who's become a villain but i think he's misunderstood and some heroes that are quite frankly probably villains in disguise uh do you watch sports through that lens uh with your writing background and and, and your uh, penchant for for creating characters do you look at the characters in sports i do um you know i i think america loves the underdog so we and we, we don't like, you know, except if it happens to be your dynasty, right. we tend to not like dynasties, you know? Right. I mean, when I, was, uh, when I was in college, it was Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers. And if you were from Green Bay, you loved them. If you were from anywhere else, you hated Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers and wanted to see them go down to defeat. And the Yankees in baseball, of course, I, growing up, I was a baseball fan, but I was a Dodgers fan, a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And all through the 50s of my childhood it, like every year we met the yankees in the world series and every year we lost mm -hmm. until we finally won in 55 and it was glorious yeah. it was glorious because the underdog finally won we finally yeah. beat you know we finally defeated well darth vader and the, the death star didn't exist then but it was right. It felt like <laughs> right you know it never defeat the yankees and all that but unfortunately then two years later they they uh they moved out of uh, brooklyn to los angeles and ripped out my heart Hey, Chris and George, uh, 1955, one of the best years of my life. A lifelong Dodger fan, and you know what I went through before 1955. We kept getting beat by the Yankees. And then came 1955. I was uh, 21 and a half years old, followed the Dodgers thoroughly. And then that wonderful day when they won the World Series. Johnny Padres, who I came to know pretty well later in life, pitched a magnificent game, shut him out two to nothing. Sandy Amros makes that crazy catch in left field, turns it into a double play. And in the bottom of the ninth inning, when the Yankees came to bat, all of us Dodger fans said, they're going to win, they're going to do something. The Yankees always did something. And wacko, two minutes, the inning was over. And we won two nothing. There was the parade. I went to the parade. It was just a great moment in my life, 1955. Two years later, I would move to Florida to break into broadcasting, and the Dodgers would move to L.A. and a whole new chapter in their existence. But there was nothing like Brooklyn, 
and nothing like the Dodgers. But oh, yeah. a few years later, we got the Mets, and we started all the way over again from the depth of the thing. But still, the the you know, it's a whole different experience. I think being a Yankees fan or being a fan of the the Warriors, Golden State Warriors, and New England Patriots, these teams that are in it every year. Every year, I, I don't know. I, I've never really had that experience. My teams are not in it every year, but every once in a while they're in it. Like yeah. '69 for the for the Jets and the Mets, both in the same year. That was amazing. Tom Seaver on one hand and and Joe Namath on the other, and uh, of course uh, the '86 World Series where the Mets defeated the Red Sox. So I was at Game Six. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have my ticket there. So I was sitting in the fourth row on the first bet side when that ball went between Bill Buckner's legs. And and the Giants' two Super Bowl wins, uh, you know, in recent memory, they were both uh, amazing over the Patriots. And we, we were we were huge underdogs in both of those games, which yeah. made the win that much that much sweeter. I mean, the, f the first time in Super Bowl 42, uh, the, the Giants were a wildcard team. They were on the road, at, and the talking heads on television picked against them in every game. They picked, picked the Buccaneers. Yeah, they were to beat playing the Tampa the Bay Buccaneers. Then they picked the Cowboys to beat them in the, in the divisional game. And then in the NFC Championship, they yeah. picked the Packers to beat them. And the Giants kept surprising them all the way to the win over the Patriots. And it was amazing. It, it, remind, it does remind me, and I asked Strahan at one point, I said, hey, Stray. Uh, who's the bigger underdog upset victory, the Eagles and the Patriots or the, the Giants and the Patriots? And I said, you know, I, I would actually concede that you guys are far and away the bigger underdogs because you were 12-point dogs. We were like eight to start the week, and it moved to four. And we had a backup quarterback, yeah, but Nick Foles is kind of this guy that was laying in wait. And uh, the one thing that y'all didn't do is, is, is the, you didn't come up with, with, with a mask. Uh, you know, we had the dog masks. There was no mask, <laughs> so there was no mask. You grow up in Bayonne. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about your beginnings and, 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 and your creativity. I mean, you know, your dad's a longshoreman. He's probably unpacking boxes from all over the world. You know, you're kind of, you're, you, you're not seeing much of anything that's not Bayonne. And, and I wonder, as somebody who's so incredibly creative, it begs the question, is, is creativity nature or nurture? Is it, are you born with an innate creativity or, or is it nurtured through a lack of, you know, new experiences and having to use your mind more? That's an interesting question, and I, I don't really know the answer to it. But it, it certainly, uh, my creativity was was spurred by Bayon. I mean, um, we were um, we were poor uh, through most of my childhood. My father did become a longshoreman, and uh, eventually made pretty good money as a, as a union job. But bef when you first become a longshoreman, you, you go to work every day and, and they don't necessarily pick you. It's like scenes in Cinderella Man or, or Rocky. The guy said, oh, we need six guys today. And he picks that. That's called shaping up. So my father would, would leave the house before I even got up. He'd leave the house at dawn to go shape up on the docks and he wouldn't get picked because he was a new guy. And by the time I was up and eating breakfast to go to school, he would be back and another day of, uh, of not being employed. And before, before that, he had a couple of years where, where he was unemployed and we were just living on unemployment insurance and we lived in the projects on First Street. Um, but we never went anywhere. We didn't own a car. Uh, we didn't go on vacation down to Jersey Shore in the summer like some of my friends. I just stayed in the same apartment. But I had books. 
I mean, I, I could see the world with books. I could go to Paris or London in historical novels. I could go to Mars with Edgar Rice Burroughs or, or to Middle Earth with J.R. Tolkien or the Hyborian Age with Robert E. Howard. And so even though my world was five blocks long in the real world, through books and comic books, I, I love comic books as well, Batman, Spider-Man, you know, Gotham City and uh, Metropolis and all that stuff. I got to visit some pretty amazing places in my imagination and then very early I started making up my own stories, you know, sort of mixing these places that I'd read about with things that I'd made up entirely. Yeah, I heard I heard a little bit about that, and I heard one story in particular. I mean, you say you seem pretty. Uh, you had a lot of ingenuity for a kid. I mean, you were you were selling stories, you were re doing dramatic readings, and then there was a story about the turtles. Uh, if you care to tell it, I thought it was a terrific story, and I also want to know if the turtles are okay at this point. Um, <laughs> well, not those turtles. <laughs> those turtles sadly are long dead. Um, yeah, living in the projects, we were not allowed to have uh, uh, dogs or cats. They were prohibited in the uh, in the public housing that we lived at. So um, the only pets that I could have as a kid uh, were, you know, like fish, tropical fish. We could have goldfish and guppies and stuff like that. And we got these little turtles, red ear turtles, the dime store turtles. You got them at Woolworths and Kresge's and places like that. They came in a little plastic bowl with a palm tree in the middle and half of it was gravel and half of it was water. And then they sold your turtle food to feed them. Um, and it happened that two of those plastic bowls fit exactly in this toy castle I had. So I could put the two plastic bowls in the courtyard of this toy castle that was right right by my window. Uh, so that's where I kept them. And since they lived in a castle, I started thinking of them as kings and knights and all of that stuff. Um, but I don't, I don't think I don't think that turtle food that they gave you when you bought the turtles was the healthiest <laughs> thing. These turtles died very easily. Yeah. And I never had one of them last longer than like six months or something like that. And uh, sometimes they would escape the castle. You wouldn't know where they went and you'd find them <laughs> six months later under the refrigerator. Uh, but, so, so, uh, so the turtles the turtles didn't have any plot armor? They were they were very susceptible to untimely they, death? They did, they did not. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not succumb. You know, some people like to paint the turtle shells, which is not good for them. Yeah. I never did that. But the turtles died anyway, and I was a kid, so I needed an explanation for this. Yeah. I didn't want to, I, I wasn't sophisticated enough to blame the crummy turtle food that they gave you. Right. So I decided that the turtles were competing for the crown, and they were all murdering each other. And when one of the turtles died, he must have been killed by the other two <laughs> turtles. And I started writing this whole story about, you know, this king was killed by that king, yeah. and somebody else took the crown, and all that. So that was my first epic fantasy: was Turtle Castle. It was a slow-moving epic. It was very <laughs> slow-moving. That's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, so you you grew up a big comic book fan. Uh, you were a big fan of long-form storytelling, and you know it's something you've done tremendously throughout your career. But do you ever feel like, man, if I was, you know, if I if the '70s were the 2000s or 2010 with this explosion of interest in comic books on screen and Netflix and Hulu and ways to tell your stories on screen, do you ever wonder what it would have been in the 70s? You wouldn't have been struggling through the 70s. I know you were teaching, you know, you were into chess, but I saw you say something where you were like, I, I wasn't making enough money to survive. I mean, do you ever wonder what it would have been like? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's an alternate world there. I mean, uh, 
I actually started writing stories about superheroes when I was in high school uh, for comic book fanzines. You know, they had, I wasn't paid anything for them. They were these little mimeographed or dittoed amateur magazines that came out. But I wrote my stories and I sent them in and they were published and people liked them, which was very important to me because it, it gave me a lot of confidence. So look, you know, I published a story and people are saying it was good. Um, so that was very encouraging to me. And, uh, and of course, I... The first stuff of mine ever published in a professional publication were letters to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and the Avengers, where I, I wrote them and they published my letters to the editor. That's crazy. So uh, in, in 1971, when I got out of uh, Northwestern University, I got a bachelor's and a master's in journalism, and uh, I was looking for a job. So one of the places I applied was Marvel Comics. Um, but sadly, they did not hire me. Right. Uh, they, they brought me in for an interview because I was fairly well-known within the little world of comics fandom because of all my amateur stories. But uh, they had a full writing staff and they didn't need anyone else. Um, but I often thought, well, what, how would my life have been different if they had hired me? Right. And it would have been very different. I, uh, I think I would have uh, probably made up a lot of superheroes and supervillains. I would have become, I would have had a, a career like maybe my friend Len Wein, who, uh, who created Wolverine and the new X-Men and Swamp Thing, and then Len sadly passed away last year. But he was a brilliant guy. But he and I were both in high school together. We met at the first comic convention ever held. Um, or Marv Wolfman or Jerry Conway or some of the other people who broke in that. I could have had that sort of career. Um, but I think it's probably better the way it turned out. Things, uh, things have turned you know, out great. One of the things, if you wrote for Marvel or DC then, they owned everything you created. So, you know, Len, Len, as brilliant as he was, never received any money for Wolverine, yeah. uh, despite all the giant movies made or, or any money for Swamp Thing, I think. Right. Um, everything was owned. You, you, you paid, worked for a salary, you worked for page rates, and everything you got uh, was owned by the company. Um, I think it's better these days. Uh, you know, comics have changed a lot since the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, so creators have a lot more rights and they have a lot more ownership of the properties that they create. But just the same, I'm glad uh, that my career went the way it did and that I'm able to, uh, you know, have Game of Thrones and have A Song of Ice and Fire and all the other things I create too. And my, my penchant to my love for superheroes does have a way of expressing itself in the wildcard books. Which yeah, been yeah. Since well, I mean, uh, we're going to get to the wildcard. It's on Hulu. Uh, I'm going I'm to be excited to watch it. I need new shows to binge to watch. I mean, uh, <laughs> but I got to feel like I know things turned out well for you. But I got to feel like the comic people probably feel like passing you up was like passing up Jordan and, and taking Sam Bowie. No disrespect to whoever whoever uh, the, got your job. I wanted to pivot a little bit, uh, really a quicker question, uh, a more fun question. What superhero power would you want if you could have it? Well, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I would always love to fly. I always thought flying was cool. Um, you wouldn't have to wait in line at airports, none of that stuff, I hate airports, so. Uh, yes, I, I do. I do too, especially uh, <laughs> since I've now become, uh, you know, well known. Yeah, yeah. You're suddenly, someone recognizes me, and then suddenly there's a circle of people around me wanting yeah. selfies. It's never the <laughs> it's never the first person. What I get annoyed with is the person that that like see the picture 
and then they, they flock and they're like, I don't know who you are, but I know you're famous. Like, I love talking to people that are fans. Like, I, I'll talk to any fan, uh, especially right. kids. But the person that I'm eyeballing that walks over because they saw somebody else take a picture, that can be a little annoying, so. If I could change history, I'd go back and kill whoever decided to put cameras in cell phones. <laughs> I you mean, know what, you got something up there. At that point, you know, there was just an occasional guy who had a camera, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Now, like, everybody has a camera all the time. And they don't, frequently, they don't even really want to talk to you or meet you, they just want they just want to take the picture. I enjoy a good conversation. So, um, but my 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 superhero power that I would like, obviously, as a football player, would be Wolverine. You mentioned your buddy had created Wolverine. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I guess that's what it's like to be on HGH or steroids or one of these guys that's like shooting up. But I, for me, it's like it takes so much in the NFL. Literally, our week is you know you wake up Monday, you can't walk. You wake up Tuesday, the tort all wakes off, wears off, and you can't move. And it's almost worse. And then Wednesday through Thursday through Friday, you're working through pain, and you really feel better by Saturday or Sunday. So Wolverine would be my power. Uh, well, the healing factor would definitely be good there. Yeah, it would be. I mean, do you worry about the long-term effects, the, I, the concussions, yeah. and, and and late in life, not? So George, yeah, it's, it's a it's a great question. I think uh, I think we are the last generation that won't fully understand the ramifications of what we're doing to our bodies. I think. When we look at the next generation, my son's generation, who I hope he doesn't play football, both my sons, I hope he, he does something much cooler, like become a writer or something. But, um, you know, my dad played ball. He played 13 years. He's not a guy who I could grow up and play catch with or go hiking with or the things I love to do. Uh, and he sacrificed his body for that. Now, the one thing is he's cognitively awesome and he's really sharp. He's one of the smartest guys, most even keel guys I know. I think there are a lot of concerns with head trauma um, but it's it's compounded when your when your family played the game for 13 years, and on top of that, though, I don't think they have a great handle on predicting behavioral outcomes. So I do think some of it's genetic, some of it's uh, you know um, a guy's you know mental wellness that ha could have nothing to do with head trauma. I think nowadays we get into this game where anytime a player is going through something, we automatically are like, well, that guy has CTE. I think there are existential crises. I think there's, you know, when you leave the game, you have to grapple with reinventing yourself and you have to grapple with being somebody new. So that can challenge your existence. And that's, 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 a, that's a big issue. And I think a lot of guys go through that. I think we just need to wait a couple more years, but my body feels great. I hope I'm good. Nothing I can change about the past now, but, uh, but here I am talking to you on Skype, so my brain's working pretty well. I'm always startled by, by uh, the accounts of, uh, of NFL players yeah. and other sports figures who I know have made tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and then they're they're broke. I think when, when a normal guy on Wall Street gets gets rich, there's a few people in his family that know it. The guy that, that sees him watch, walking down the street in, a, in an Italian suit, they know that guy's rich. But when you're a, a wealthy athlete and you've got you've got uh, a name and you can your salaries Google, um, you know, I think you do get some sharks and you get you get people that are your your family and friends, but they become sharks because. You know, it gets into this dependency on you're used to providing for everyone. And a lot of guys in my league didn't grow up how I grew up, and that included my dad. My dad grew up in, in Charlestown, South Boston, tough upbringing, um, you know, and, and gave me a life he didn't have. So he had to probably deal with more of the, you know, the I grew up and came from nothing, and I'm the guy with the big paycheck now. You know, where I grew up, you know, I went to a good school. I've got good friends. I stay in touch with everybody. 
And I think another thing is like you front load your earning potential as a player. So what you have is a bunch of money up front. You see everybody else in this rat race for a lifestyle. And then the, the music stops. And you're not only going through this crisis, you have a ton of free time. And what do guys do with free time? They spend money. And I think that's a big problem. I was just in Los Angeles recently and I visited the uh, Peterson Auto Museum, um, which is an amazing museum if you like cars. They have cars. a special display right now of, of cars from movies and television. So they have the cars from Mad Max and the DeLorean. Do from, they have Knight Rider? Uh, yeah, they have Kit. They have Kit from Knight Rider and okay. they have the DeLorean from Back to the Future and okay. some Death Race 2000, all of that. But they also have their regular displays. And uh, uh, one of them was a, was a display of electric vehicles. Um, and I'm, I'm wandering through that and I saw this uh, car built by a company called US Electric Car, right? Um, which really had a personal resonance for me because in the, in the early 80s, around 1983, I, I sold my novel uh, Fever Dream, my vampire steamboat novel. And uh, for the first time in my life, I had enough money to invest. Up to then, I'd been, you know, just living, paying my mortgage, hoping I'd sell something else by the time it came. But now, now I had enough money. I said, well, I should buy some stocks and bonds, right? So, being a science fiction writer, I said, well, I know, I know, the wave of the future. What what's going to come? So, I'm gonna I'm gonna invest shrewdly in things that'll come in the future. So I invested in U.S. electric cars. Oh, I wow. said, electric cars, yeah, that's the future. I know that, I'm a science fiction guy. Of course, I had the right idea, but I was 20 years too early and the wrong company. I right. lost, of course, every cent that I put yeah. in U.S. electric car. <laughs> and, and now I'm looking at one of them in the museum and it's got a little plaque next to it saying, oh yes, this company existed for two years and they only sold one car oh. and here it is. So I invested in a company that sold one car. Well, you had, you, you, you had, you had, you had, to, you had too much foresight. That's the problem. You were too far. Ahead. You were a step ahead. You had to let everybody else get out of the way and then just wait for Tesla, man. You're in Santa Fe now. I really was interested in some of the things you're doing in Santa Fe. I think it's pretty interesting uh, because I don't know anybody in Santa Fe, but I know that one thing that, that, that you do have down, I would love to, I would like to, I'll take you up on the invitation. And there's one thing I want to do. I want to go with you to the wolf sanctuary because I know I'm a big fan of wolves and I was going to okay, ask yeah. I was going to ask if you're planning on getting a wolf tattoo anytime soon <laughs> that that is pretty righteous <laughs> pretty righteous are you going to get a tat man how much no, do you love wolves I'm not a tattoo kind of guy <laughs> but yes it's called the wild spirit wolf sanctuary it's not actually in Santa Fe it's about five hours from here okay in a little town called Candy Kitchen New Mexico um and uh but they have uh more than 50 wolves and wolf dogs and a few other things like dingoes and New Guinea singing dogs, one of the rarest dogs in the world. Right. And uh, it's a sanctuary. They don't breed them. They don't sell them. They, they uh, you know, give them a home for uh, in, in nice, large enclosures, um, rescues, most of them. Uh, the wolf dogs in particular, there was a... a a trend a number of years ago of people wanting to have wolf dogs, half wolf, half dog. And, uh, you know, they'd be cute as puppies, but then they'd get yeah. big and too much for people to handle. Yeah. And they'd, they'd give them up, and so they wind up in the, in the sanctuary. We, we have to do that with Game of Thrones. I mean, um, Jerome Flynn, who uh, plays Bronn, has one a very favorites. nice one of my uh, message yeah. on, uh, on YouTube. Hi. 
I'm Jerome Flynn for Peter. Saying, don't adopt wolves. You know, you may love them in Game of Thrones. You see the dire wolves. But don't go out and, and get a wolf puppy or a wolf dog or anything like that, because especially if you live in an apartment yeah, or dude, a house with a tiny little backyard. Yeah. You know, these are big dogs, and, and if they have wolf in them, they're, they're half wild or they're all wild. And they're not meant for an environment like that. And then you gotta send when they get too big, you gotta send them up north. Curiously, but uh, so I was gonna um, I was gonna ask you what your favorite thing about wolves are. I mean, like what drew you to wolves? Because it seems like you have a passion for them. Well, I, I like their ferocity. Um, I like the fact that they're social animals. That they have uh, they're packs. They're not lonely hunters. They they have their own society, their own packs. They work together. Uh, you know, I, I tried to make that point in Game of Thrones, and it'll come back to it in the later books. You know, when the, when winter comes and the cold winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And you, human beings need to keep that in mind too. We all need uh, we all need each other. We all need packs. That's true in a football team as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, the individual star can't succeed without a great teammates around him. That's what that's, yeah. That's what I love. That's running back in the world, but you need an offensive line. Yeah, and I think it's really it's fitting for a D lineman because I, what I love about wolves is you know the pack mentality and being D lineman, the way we rotate and the way we chase our prey, quarterbacks and running backs. I mean, you almost feel like you are a pack, and uh, and and that ferocity you talked about, uh, it's applicable on the football field. Obviously, if I ever ran into a real one, it would scare me and I would piss down my leg. But uh, <laughs> we got these koi wolves in Virginia now. Where I live, they're they're like crosses, you know, um, and they're pretty creepy looking. Uh, I love I love looking at them, but I don't want to run into them on a trail. So the dire wolves, uh, of course, in Game of Thrones are fictional, but there were real dire wolves in prehistory. Yep. you can see some of them at the La Brea Tar Pits. Uh, yep. you know, and, and they were they were fascinating creatures in themselves. They're extinct now, but they were they're not as large as the ones in my show, but they're larger than today's wolves. And they ran in much larger packs. Yeah. Uh, you know, today a wolf pack is, you know, six to 12 maybe is the average size of a pack. The dire wolves would have packs of 50 to 100. Can you imagine, you know, <laughs> being a caveman or something and suddenly, oh. suddenly 100, 100 dire wolves oh. are, you know, swarming over oh. your camp? It must have been pretty blood curdling. I'm Dr. Mary Belisi, a researcher at La Brea Tarpets and Museum. As an expert on carnivores, I'll tell you about dire wolves. They lived from about 500,000 to 11,000 years ago, uh, going extinct at the end of the last ice age when our largest animals in North America, like mammoths and saber-toothed cats, died off. Direwolves coexisted with saber-toothed cats. Both were large predators and hunted differently. Saber-toothed cats ambushed their prey, while direwolves hunted like gray wolves today by chasing down prey like juvenile bison and cow. Now, dire wolves were the linebackers of the wolf family. They had stronger jaws and teeth than gray wolves today. They could crush bone better to get to nutritious marrow inside. I think sometimes uh, that's where our legends of uh, werewolves and vampires and all that come from, from, from our Stone Age ancestors who, who didn't know what was out there in the night, but it was pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, you mentioned La Brea Tar Pits. I grew up early, early years in Southern California. My mom used to take me all the time. I've always loved, you know, hearing about extinct animals. I was actually watching a video last night about short-faced bears. Do you remember those? The, the, they were giant bears, like twice the size of, of grizzly bears. I mean, saber-toothed tigers. It, what do you think about, like, 
bringing animals back? Are you a proponent of like, you know, you know, cloning DNA or, you know, bringing back, not in a Jurassic Park way, because they totally botched that because, because at the end of the day, in, in real life, if you did that, it would be a disaster. But I'm saying in a controlled environment where you reintroduce an animal that's extinct. I'm in favor of it. I mean, there's an organization called Belong Now, and I'm a, I'm a supporter of them. I've donated money to them. And they're initially, they're trying to bring back the uh, passenger pigeon, uh, you know, by breeding from contemporary pigeons. But uh, uh, the, the, big, uh, the big goal would be eventually to bring back the woolly mammoth and, uh, you know, some, some, of, maybe so the some of these, uh, and the dodo, the dodo, yep. Uh, yep. you know. Some of these animals, would, we killed ourselves in history, in recent history. I mean, yeah. dodos existed, uh, you know, and, until the 1700s, I think. The Dutch found them and wiped them out pretty in a generation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I, I love the egg ring thing. What about— and, You know, even Jurassic Park. I yeah. love to see a real-life dinosaur. Um, I, I, I think Jurassic Park, the first movie, is, is uh, very entertaining, but— I don't agree with Jeff Goldblum's message there that disaster was inevitable because we brought back dinosaurs and they were not meant to exist with man. That's a very anti-science measure. That's If you actually look at Jurassic Park, the reason the disaster occurs is because the fat guy turns off the fence. Right. You know, right. <laughs> if he doesn't turn off the fence, nothing bad Everybody happens. here on set agrees with you. It's like, yeah. hey, listen, hey, because that, that was the whole thing. It was like, man, they just botched it. They had a real good thing going. You go see dinosaurs. I would love to go see dinosaurs. I'm all for I'm glad you said it. I want I want to bring them all back. You know, I want to bring the dinosaurs back, Tasmanian tiger, like all this stuff, man. Like I'm really into the Tasmanian but, tiger, yeah. Yeah, cool. dude. It'd be, so so at, you got you're talking about movies, you're talking about um, Jurassic Park. One thing you got uh, in New Mexico is you have an independent theater, which I think is really cool. So my two burning questions about that. First thing, what's your stance on uh, bringing in your own candy and not buying it at the front? Is that a bad move, or is that, know, is that kind of like gamesmanship? That. That I don't think we enforce it. We wouldn't frisk anyone, but you, you could probably it. get away with it. Okay. But we do have the best popcorn in town. We're very proud of our popcorn. Okay. We have organic Amish popcorn that we get from Indiana, and we put real butter on it, none of this golden flavor, crankcase oh. oil stuff. Oh. And we have like 20 different popping, toppings. You can put Parmesan cheese or brewer's cheese or chili peppers that you can sprinkle on your popcorn. No extra charge. So. Uh, you don't oh, want yeah. to bring in your candy. You want to get our popcorn. I'm we coming. I'm, I'm coming. Yeah, I'm so coming you to your get theater. A drink with the uh, with the movie. Oh my gosh, dude! All right, I'm coming to the theater. Uh, the second burning question is: uh, What are your favorite sports movies? I, I like boxing movies. I think more than I actually like real boxing. Cinderella Man. The Cinderella Man is great. Yeah. yeah. The, the Rocky movies, especially yeah. the first one. Yeah. But uh, those those are all good, and uh, you know some of the. Uh, some of the older ones, like uh, The Harder They Fall, okay. uh, with Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart. You're not even a 10th-rate fighter. You're what they call a bum. What about Raging Bull? Is Raging Bull too dark? Raging Bull is pretty dark, but it's a good <laughs> yeah, movie. It's tough Yeah, to it's, it's pretty pretty powerful. He was a great, and, he was a great uh, boxer. incredible performance by, uh, by De Niro there. Yeah. Cinderella Man is sort of a feel-good movie. Yes, I, we can balance Raging Bull and Cinderella Man. We've got, we got a good mixture there. <laughs> For somebody like you, who's creative and, and still very active uh, at about 70 years old, you're, you don't seem like the type of guy to retire. I mean, like, what's next for, the, for you to do? I know 
you know, you've got so many projects, you've had projects throughout your life, like, is it hard to A, stay focused on one thing, and then B, like, do you ever see a time where you're like, I'm gonna relax and chill out and quote unquote retire? I can't imagine retiring. I have, I have had friends who've retired, writers, and uh, it, it still startles me when, when uh, I hear somebody doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, right now I have, of course, the two remaining books in, in A Song of Ice and Fire to finish. I'm, I, I think some of my fans already think I'm retired. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> no, the fans, they just, they just miss you. They just miss you. But, uh, believe me, I haven't. Um, yeah. So I have to finish Winds of Winter, Dream of Spring, and then I have more of the Duncan Egg stories I want to write. Uh, my latest Westeros book was Fire and Blood, which was uh, not part of the main series, but a history of Targaryen kings. And it was only the first half, so I have to write the second half of that. And that's just the stuff in, in Westeros. Um, beyond that, I, um, I edit and write for Wild Cards, the yeah. series. That's, that's been going since 1987 so it's actually a series that's been around longer we're up to like 29 books in in that series um and it's about it's and, about it's about aliens it's about you know uh, dna and, and illness it's basically and, superheroes yeah, yeah i mean we have aliens in it the, the premise is in in 1946 some aliens released a, a virus uh over earth to experiment on us and uh it kills most people who contract it, um, but nine out of every hundred are deformed in horrible ways, they're called jokers, and one in every hundred gets superpowers and becomes what we call an ace. Um, but it's a little more gritty and realistic than traditional comic books. Right. I mean, when we looked at uh, this whole concept of superpowers, you know, what would, what would you do if you got superpowers? Like, you, you would like to have Wolverine's powers but I assume that if you did get Wolverine's powers tomorrow, you would continue to be a football player. You yeah. would not immediately go out and buy a spandex costume in order to fight, fight crime. <laughs> yeah. Am I correct in that? Yeah, but I'd also do crazy shit. I'd jump off, like, uh, the side of Mount Kilimanjaro with a wingsuit on. I would, you know, I would swim with sharks, and they would bite me. I'd be like, I'm good. Like, five minutes from now, this <laughs> chunk will grow back. I mean, I probably the last thing I'd do would be football, but for a lot of guys, maybe they would play. Yeah, I, I've asked that question to many people when pitching wild cards or, or explaining it to people, and nobody ever wants to buy a spandex costume. If I <laughs> yeah, no spandex. <laughs> people want to fly, you know, yeah. say, okay, I'll, 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 I'll still be a banker, but I'll fly to work now. Right, I mean, right. Or, you know, uh, if I'm invisible, or the people want to be invisible, want to do various kinky things with it. So we <laughs> <do> it. <laughs> that's what we try to get at wild cards. What what would the effect be on the world, and what would the effect be on human life if people did have these powers, and if the world was transformed in this way? What would you do? Well, I'd probably still be a writer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you'd be a writer with some hidden superpowers. Okay. Well, do you like your comic? Do you, you like have a character in in Superworld or in Wild Cards, the great and powerful Turtle, and he's the most autobiographical character I've ever written. Uh, he's in many of the early Wild Card books. So he lives in Bayonne, New Jersey, just like I did. Oh, he wow. lives in the projects, just like I did. He, you know, he's got a weight problem, just like I've had. Uh, but he also has powerful telekinesis. So he, he, he builds a giant shell uh, because he doesn't like being shot at or punched. So, and he hides inside this shell, which he can make basically fly, and then he can go over and help people and uh, you know, do things like that. Um, so that's probably the closest to uh, what I would do, you know, the turtle. I would probably be the turtle if I had his telekinesis.
Yeah. Do yeah. you do you, you you mentioned it being darker? And my last question would be, you know, you love comics. I think they're super popular right now. Admittedly, I'm like a pretty run-of-the-mill comic book fan, and and with the movies as well, I think I'm more drawn to the darker stories. Are you more drawn to the darker comic book stories, the the adaptations that are a little bit grittier, or do you do you find room for the the ones with the one-liners and and the feel-good stories and the big explosions? Well, you know, I'm not actually a fan of big explosions. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the action movie's fine, but you know. Um, in a superhero movie, you you probably want some fight scenes or or some action. But I like I actually like the character moments. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of a lot of movies <laughs> that are you know more like uh, action movies, uh, I I get up and go get popcorn during the car chase because now I know okay the car chase is going to go on for ten minutes and cars are going to be crashing and banging into walls. It's yeah. boring to me. Yeah. I want to see the scenes where two characters are talking to each other and there's some emotional conflict. Um. But having been a comic book fan for for uh, all these years, I, I I'm afraid I'm a bit of a I don't know a purist. I, I it bothers me when they diverge from the comic books, and I'm always boring my my uh, companions in movies. That's not the way it was in Fantastic Four number twelve. Yeah, <laughs> they get this character right. all wrong. <laughs> and you know, and you know as well as anybody. And I heard you say before that um, you know sometimes when you're working with TV, you're almost like you're talking to your producer, your director, whatever. You're like, I need X, Y, and Z, and they're like, we don't have a budget for that, you know. But you're, but writing and 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 fleshing these characters and these situations and these these predicaments and battles out, you know, you have an infinite supply of resources at your fingertip. Where you know, on film, it's tougher to to adapt these things. Yeah, that was actually one of the things that inspired me to write uh, a Song of Ice and Fire, the Game of Thrones books. I mean, from, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, I was predominantly working in television. Although I, I, did, I was still writing some prose and, and keeping my hand in there. But I was, I was on um, Twilight Zone Revival of the mid-80s. I was on staff on that. I did five episodes. Then I did 13 episodes for Beauty and the Beast with Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton. And uh, after that, um, I had a, what they call a development deal where I was coming up with my own pilots and shows. And through all those 10 years, the, the message that I was constantly getting when I turned in my first draft was, George, this is great, but we can't do it. It's too expensive. It's too big. <laughs> right. there, there are too many characters. It's too complicated. Uh, you know, you got 12 matte paintings in here. We can do two. And, you know, this big battle at the end, you got 10,000 people on the side. <laughs> Make it a duel between the hero and the villain. And I would do that. That was the job. I would do that. But I never liked doing it. Right. I always preferred my first draft. So after 10 years of it, when I went back to books, I said, okay, now I have an unlimited budget. I can have as many characters as I want. I can have as many battles as I want. I can have giant iconic castles. I can have dragons. I can have dire wolves. I'm just going to do it exactly the way I want and not worry about anybody's budget. And then, because life is full of these weird little ironies, that turns out to be the thing that's the huge television hit, right. not the ones that I created expressly for television. Right. So that's life in Hollywood, I guess. That is the irony of it, and I, I really, I really wish you the best of luck with whatever your next endeavors are. I'll be watching. I'll be reading. I can't wait to dive into your books more. And I'm <laughs> going to become a really avid reader, and, and I'm a big fan of yours, and I just appreciate the time today, George. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And please do come to Santa Fe and visit sometime. Uh, we'll catch you. We'll, we'll catch you. You can see Meow Wolf, too. That's another thing I'm involved with. Oh, yeah? 
Yeah, look up me out. Okay, I'll look it up and I'll make a little list and I'll be there and we can go see the wolves. We can go check a check a movie out of your theater. I want the I want the chili powder popcorn. I, I, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm petrified to try it. It sounds good, but uh, but I will be there and I can't wait. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, please make sure you subscribe and check out our uh, Chalk YouTube channel for more content. Stick around uh, for next week's Fishbowl. That's going to be with uh, Michael Rubin, owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, it was always very good to me in Philly. Really good to all the athletes, not just the basketball players. Uh, one of the, the reasons I love Philly was guys like Michael Rubin. Uh he obviously runs the sports retailer uh, website Fanatics, which has just been, uh, you know, become a giant among other e-commerce businesses. Um, so pretty interesting to talk to a guy who started with a ski shop and ended up with the 76ers. And that's what we have here. So please subscribe and poke around the Chalk Media YouTube page for more content.